Welcome to a place of wellness and healing for both your body and mind. Get ready to live a happy, healthy, energized life that totally rocks. You're listening to Straight Talking Natural Health, a no BS podcast for busy women who want to ditch the fatigue, find balance and feel great with your host and naturopath, Jules Galloway. You may remember today's guest from episode 21 of this podcast when we had a very enlightening chat about PCOS and endometriosis. She's a naturopathic doctor, an educator, an author, and a women's health activist. She literally wrote the book on how to have a healthy, stress-free, pain-free cycle. It's called the Period Repair Manual, and it's loved by both practitioner and lay people alike. And now she's back with a new book called The Hormone Repair Manual, Every Woman's Guide to Healthy Hormones After 40, which is all about perimenopause and menopause, which I have to say that as a woman who's about to have her 45th birthday over here, I find this very helpful and timely and a bit spooky. So just like last time, we're going to talk about what's normal, what isn't normal, how to address unwanted symptoms naturally, and how we can navigate this tricky time with grace and ease. Yes, it's possible. So please welcome to the show, the very wonderful Lara Bryden. (laughs) Hi, what a great intro. Thanks for having me back. I loved our last conversation so oh, I'm looking so, forward to this I'm so yeah. grateful that you've come back to help us navigate through this one because I think for so many women with menopause and perimenopausal symptoms it's like wading through mud it's just it's it's not a joyous time for a lot of people is it it can be a tricky time but it's some women don't don't have any problems at all so I think I just want to make that kind of the baseline too that we don't want to unnecessarily expect things to happen that aren't going to happen yeah true that all right so that's Mm -hmm. actually a perfect segue into my first question you're a legend thank you (laughs) what should a healthy menopause look like right well today we're talking about perimenopause and I do want to just differentiate them because of course they always get mixed one for the other but they're actually completely completely different so perimenopause is that anywhere between two up to 12 years before the final period, and really it takes perimenopause goes all the way until one year after the final period. It's the time of transition, the time of change, the time of symptoms, if they're going to be symptoms. Menopause, in contrast, is the life phase that begins one year after the final period. And menopause, as you can imagine by the definition lasts like three or four decades and is generally a pretty stable time with not much symptoms apart from maybe some vaginal dryness, which we can get into. But perimenopause is where the trouble can occur. So in answer to your question, you know, what does a healthy perimenopause look like? I guess that would be, you know, that transition with no symptoms. You know, which I think is possible for a lot of women. I think we can get close to no symptoms. And by no symptoms, I mean no night sweats, no mood changes, no migraines, no crazy heavy periods. Yeah, yeah. all of that. <laughs> that's, a, that's a really interesting distinction between the two because it's, it's, we're conditioned to kind of go menopausal symptoms are, and all the things you just mentioned, the hot flushes, the night sweats, the insomnia, like all of that. And then when you go down to your local pharmacy or health food shop, it's all about menopause formulas 
Yeah. Um, and so what you're saying is everything really, if we're being really accurate, yeah. should be labelled perimenopause. Correct. This is one of the things, yeah, this is one of my messages. It's the, what, we're, what women are experiencing, if there are symptoms, it's during that perimenopause phase or what I call in the book second puberty. And the thing to understand about that is by definition, it's temporary, right? You know, first puberty was temporary and second puberty is temporary as well. That's a time of change. I think that can also help too. In chapter one of Hormone Repair Manual, I, I talk about that right away and but how it's temporary. And so you have to be careful to not be, take on as permanent a diagnosis such as fibromyalgia or depression or something, a diagnosis that might be given to you during those years and just understand that, okay, this might actually be a temporary thing. And by temporary, I don't mean you just have to put up with it for those years. You can still treat it, but also know even if you didn't treat it, there would be an end point. You would reach what the professor who helped me with my book, Geraldine Pryor, calls the kinder, calmer phase of menopause that begins one year after your final period. By that age, you know, into your late 50s, 60s, most women are good. They don't need herbal formulas. You know, they're, they're good. They're sleeping. They're fine. Mm-hmm. I know yeah. I just had like chills going down when you said second puberty because yeah. my, my first puberty sucked. Mm. <laughs> sucked. I'm like, oh, God, no, Laurie, you don't understand. The first one was <laughs> awful. What are we doing this again now? Jesus. <laughs> All right. Thanks, mate. Um. <laughs> yeah. Well, yep. It's like if you have if you enter into your reproductive years, you enter into menstruating and you have to exit it eventually. This is my new one of my new ways of thinking is that I I've kind of now from my my position of being almost menopausal, like almost through all of the perimenopausal everything, and out the other side, I'm looking back, I'm suddenly thinking, wait, I think the baseline female physiology is like childhood, girlhood, pre-puberty, and then menopause. That's our baseline. (laughs) And then we have these, in the middle, we have these three or four decades of menstruating, which are awesome. Even if, you know, even if, if you make a baby or even if you don't, making hormones by having reproductive cycles is amazing, but it has to end. It's not something we do forever. It's true. It's true. Okay. So why do so many women suffer with symptoms when they're heading out the other end from reproductive years? What's gone wrong? Yeah. Well, it's a big change hormonally. And I might just, in a minute, in a moment, I'll talk through what the changes are kind of in sequence. I guess from a broader perspective, if your listeners are interested, I'm a, my first career was as an evolutionary biologist. So I see a lot of things through that lens. I'll just briefly say, you know, the evidence is that we've basically, we've had menopause for as long actually, and even, you know, tens of thousands of years ago, people were, women were living into past menopause into their seventies and eighties. And so the fact that, it shouldn't be associated with symptoms, if you know what I mean. Just like menstruation shouldn't be associated with symptoms. It's a normal life phase. It's a normal thing that happens. And I, in most traditional settings, kind of modern forager group settings who live a very natural lifestyle, they don't report symptoms. So there seems to be something happening with a mismatch, evolutionary mismatch between our modern world and the existence of symptoms with perimenopause. And 
in the book, I talk about that just a little bit, just talking about mismatch with our modern diet, with our modern lifestyle, and definitely with environmental toxins. I won't belabor that, but there's evidence that our exposure, which is through no fault of our own, to environmental toxins like lead and pesticides and other things may be creating, making this transition much harder than it should have been, if that makes sense. So um, fortunately, some of the things we can modify, some of the modern lifestyle things we can change, which is what I talk about in my book. But shall I just, Jill, should I just go in through the, you know, the sequence of hormone changes and what those are, and just to give a, a picture of What's yep. happening? Absolutely, yeah. please. Okay. All right. So phase one, <laughs> in fact, I do break down perimenopause into the four phases, which um, based on some of the literature and the work of Gerilyn Pryor, we put together a diagram of um, Gerilyn Pryor, the endocrinologist who helped me with this book, a diagram of the four phases. And so in the beginning, what happens is estrogen goes higher up to three times higher. There are different reasons for that, but maybe the estrogen level that you had in your thirties, you can triple that. And okay. And I'm talking about starting phase one of perimenopause would typically start with really, it very, it does vary with the individual very much, but it could start as young as 35. So anywhere between 35 into your early forties, that's when potentially moving into phase one, which is not to say being in phase one of perimenopause doesn't mean you can't still have a baby. Right. So I don't, I want to if people are feeling frightened that I'm suggesting you could be in phase one of perimenopause so young, it doesn't really mean anything apart from just understanding what your body's doing, right? Just having the language and the knowledge to, to know what's happening. So phase one is much higher levels of estrogen potentially, like not permanently high, but obviously spiking up and down through the cycle of the estrogen roller coaster, I call it. And when estrogen is going up like that, it can create a histamine or a mast cell reaction, like an immune reaction, which can cause headaches and rashes and fluid and potentially worsen migraines and all those symptoms that we typically associated with kind of estrogen, so-called estrogen dominance, which is a term that I don't really use. And at the same time that estrogen is going higher in those years, progesterone is going lower because it's becoming harder and harder to ovulate robustly and make a good level of progesterone to balance that out. So with the loss, partial loss and eventual complete loss of progesterone, symptoms start to shine through like heavier periods for sure. And we can talk about that in more detail if you want, but painful periods, increased migraines. And the other thing with the loss of progesterone is sleep problems, sleep disturbance, waking in the night, potentially premenstrual night sweats, um, sometimes more difficulty falling asleep. So that's the picture in the earlier phases. Eventually, of course, through the later phases, like eight or nine years later, you move into more of a low estrogen phase. That's when that does eventually happen. And that can be associated with a shift to insulin resistance. So I don't know if your listeners, they're probably quite familiar with insulin resistance. I suspect you and I spoke about it when we did our previous podcast. I think we talked on it with PCOS, yeah. Yeah. So pre-diabetes or insulin resistance affects one in two people in the 45 plus age range. So it's not uncommon, obviously. And menopause, perimenopause, um, and eventually menopause actually, it's associated with an increased risk of insulin 
resistance. And at the same time, as I talk about in my book, having insulin resistance is one of the factors that can make the whole process much harder, can contribute to symptoms during this transition, particularly when it comes to the brain and the brain energy. And because a lot of the symptoms of perimenopause, like the headaches, the sleep, the hot flushes, the night sweats, that's all coming from the brain, right? This is, this is about brain energy, a lot of it, and about what I call a rewiring of the brain or a recalibration of the brain. So that hopefully gives you a lay of the land, what's when, happening. And yeah. And when you say <laughs> insulin resistance, my naturopathic brain immediately thinks, oh God, like low energy levels, brain fog, uh, like, you know, changing the foods that you crave, et cetera. So really putting people behind the eight ball in, in terms of being able to make healthy food choices unless they realize what's going on. For sure. Yep. All of that. So, yeah. Right. Yep. <laughs> All right. Well, so then phase two, hit me. What goes on next? Oh, well, the phase two, yeah. So phase one, I kind of ran through all the phases. So phase one and two are high estrogen, high estrogen, low progesterone. Phase three, it's actually, the inter- phase three is when estrogen starts to be lower as well. And there can be a shift to insulin resistance and what I call in the book testosterone dom- dominance, which is a bit of testosterone coming shining through which is not always a good thing especially if there's a history of pcos in terms of the phases that that also refers to the what's happening with the cycle so i might just run through that Mm -hmm. so phase one is when symptoms are starting but cycles are still regular so that's important to know the cycles typically start to shorten a little bit if anything you might shift from like a 29 day cycle to a 26 day cycle and start to have some of the symptoms of perimenopause that I list in the book. And then phase two, each phase lasts a few years. Phase two is when the period, the cycle starts to vary, like the length of the cycle starts to vary by up to seven days, around more than seven days um, from cycle to cycle. And then phase three is when the cycle starts to vary by a lot more, like up to 30 days variation. And then like, for example, you might start to have like where you don't get a period for a couple of months. That's phase three. And then phase four is the phase I'm in, which is when you're in the, what I call the waiting room for menopause. And you're wondering if that period six months ago or whenever it was, was your last period. You're thinking, you're thinking I'm like, you're, tr- you're trying to wait for that 12 months. And I can tell you right now, it almost never goes like, straightforward oh that was my last period 12 months boom it's over it's almost always oh was that my last period then nine months later oh I got a period and then you have to start all of counting all over again so that phase can go on <laughs> for a few years at about nine months that often <laughs> happens yeah it's true it's true yeah so those are the phases mm-hmm. that, that just makes so much sense I really feel like uh what you've done is show people that all of this starts, uh, like the cascade starts a lot earlier than we realize. And yeah. that so many women are probably listening to this right now who are in phase one, <clears throat> like myself, who yeah. are thinking, holy crap, that cycle yeah. moved from 28 days to an average of 26 days. Yeah. Now I know why. I just thought it was just trying to sink in with the moon or something. <laughs> Um, 
Yeah, because I live in Byron. Uh, so we talk about the moon a lot here. But, yeah, the histamine symptoms and the, like, I've had a few friends who are my age who've said, oh, I just feel like the last few periods I've had were, like, really painful. Like, what's going on? I should be yeah. heading out of this, not into this at this age. And it's that real estrogen histamine axis where like and if someone goes into this with like a touch of endometriosis or something you know something not quite right anyway or maybe low progesterone due to stress in the first place going into this it really again sets sets them up doesn't it yeah and it's worth mentioning another condition called adenomyosis which is a sister condition to endometriosis adenomyosis can occur at any age it causes pain and heavy bleeding it's a it's kind of like endometriosis within the uterine wall and it's quite common. And I just mentioned it because I've, I've, I've had many patients who that showed up on their ultrasound, but their doctor didn't mention it to them, I guess, because they, the doctor was thinking, well, it doesn't change anything. The recommendation is still the hormonal IUD, but from a natural perspective, it's really worth knowing if you have that diagnosis. Sorry, I said earlier, it can occur at any age, but it's more common in your forties. So it's it. And in terms of periods, I guess I would estimate it's about... About one for about one in three women, that'd be my estimate. Um, periods get way worse before they end. Like there's this um, what are called the dangerous years for the uterus in your 40s, where they get more painful, they get more, they get heavier. But fortunately, that's not everyone, but it it's about one in three. And when it happens, like in terms of heavy periods, just to give you an example, because someone listening almost definitely is having this experience. The normal, as you, as you know, the normal maximum from flow in a period is 80 milliliters of menstrual fluid over all the days of the period. So it's about five tablespoons. With a perimenopausal flooding crazy period, women can lose 500 mils. So 500 instead of 80, like it's a couple of cups of menstrual fluid. Like obviously that cannot be permitted to go on for long because that was very depleting. But this is what I'm talking about. This is the crazy heavy periods of perimenopause potentially for some women. Yeah. So if someone is listening to this and they they are in these early phases and they are like nodding their heads and going, oh my God, this is exactly me. Yeah. It can be done. What are the the first things you would say to someone who came into your clinic with, with this presentation? Right. Well, first of all, I mean, yes, there are things that can be done. And I guess I would say get my book because it's a good, it's a good, I mean, it's a good guide post like to look for not just, not just natural treatments, but conventional treatments. So in terms of symptoms though, it, I mean, in terms of treatments, it somewhat depends on the symptoms. So the like, for example, the treatment for the very heavy periods is different, somewhat different from the treatments for the night sweats and the hot flushes. Um, I guess one unifying feature would be that all of them, a lot of them stem from the the drop in progesterone. And so, as you saw in the book, you know, one of my common recommendations is to try to get your hands on some real progesterone, natural progesterone, what's actually available now by prescription in Australia by the brand name Prometrium and or what used to be called natural progesterone or compounded progesterone that can have a period lightening effect that can help with night sweats that can help with migraines. So that's one of the treatments, but of course there are lots of other nutritional and lifestyle treatments 
I might offer one that I think is quite important for a lot of the symptoms, and that's um, to have a good look at alcohol and probably stop it for a while because, <laughs> yeah, it's true. I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but it um, <laughs> it's I, I can't even like it would take all you know, all the rest of our podcast for me to list all the ways potentially that alcohol is problematic in this setting of perimenopause. But one example is that estrogen or alcohol increases estrogen, right? We've just talked about how this is a time of higher than normal estrogen and alcohol increases that. So that's one of the reasons that alcohol increases the risk of breast cancer. And I do, I have been mentioning this in most interviews because I just think, I'll, unfortunately, I, I don't know why, but that message about alcohol and breast cancer has not really got through, gotten through to, no. no. And not just popular. to put it, no, and just to put it in perspective, like the actual numbers on that, and it's not, it's not a tenuous link, right? Like the research is really solid around that. And the the risk with alcohol and breast cancer is linear, which means that obviously heavy drinking carries a higher risk, like more moderate drinking carries a lower risk. It's proportional, but even moderate drinking, which would be like probably four or five drinks in a week carries, increases the risk for breast cancer as much as menopausal hormone therapy, like as much as estrogen therapy. So just to put that in perspective, right? Because because wow. a lot of people are quite are quite frightened of hormone therapy. I talk in the yes. book quite a lot about hormone therapy. I'm I'm sort of I'm quite neutral about it. You know, I I know it can be helpful for some women. I think some women don't need it, but I also agree that like some of the you know fear messaging around that is not accurate, at least not anymore. And the hormone therapy of modern day is, for what it's worth, very different than the hormone therapy of the '90s. Of the 1990s, and I was—I've been around as a clinician for all, since for all that time, since the mid 90s. So definitely, when I started practicing, a lot of my patients were on that old school, really not very safe type of hormone replacement, then called hormone replacement. And now, fortunately, it's quite different, which is yeah, yeah. something also good. Yeah, that, that's mind blowing though that the the link with alcohol and breast cancer is like that strong, and yeah, we're not talking about it and no yeah it's like we've got blinkers on yeah well and not to be too conspiracy theory but like there's evidence that the alcohol industry works pretty hard to keep that messaging down you know they prefer the messaging of oh what wine is good for you kind of thing you know it's sort of wine is antioxidants yeah it reduces your risk of heart disease which actually it appears to not be true. So they really loved that brief, you know, decade or two that we had of thinking, oh, alcohol is good for you and slows aging. But actually the modern analysis of that data is no. <laughs> no. And I have quite a big section of <laughs> quite a big section about alcohol in the book. So people can refer to that and just take my word for it that especially if you're dealing with night sweats or um sleep disturbance in your 40s, stopping alcohol in combination with taking a good quality magnesium supplement is step number one and maybe all you need to do. I just had an email from a patient yesterday where that's all she had to do. We had the whole thing queued up for her, right? They were like, okay, you're going to take this good magnesium. You're going to stop alcohol. I also gave her 
iodine, which we can talk a little about a little bit. And then we're like, oh, and if that doesn't work, then you could do progesterone. We had all these next steps. And she, that first phase of just, you know, no alcohol and sorry, no alcohol and take magnesium. And she was fine in terms of her symptoms. So that can definitely happen. Yeah. And, and I think it's, it's an unpopular reality that sometimes that is really the, the best course of action or the, the most effective course of action. But I know so many people who would be like, no, but I really love my wine. Can you give me a supplement instead? So it, it's yeah. tough. It is tough. And there's that real uh, vicious cycle of if you're not sleeping well because you're having night sweats and, and waking up in the middle of the night, then you wake up and you fill yourself with coffee in the morning to wake up and then you're having uh, wine or alcohol to wind down in the evening to get to sleep. And then if the wine is contributing to the night sweats, you've just perpetuated that cycle again and again. So yeah, it is, it's a, it's a tough thing to break and it takes, it takes guts and, and determination to say, okay, I'm going to try and not have alcohol for a while and see if I feel better. But so many of my friends who are aged between 40 and 50 years old have have really reflected in, you know, when I've been chatting with them about this sort of stuff, they've really reflected what you've just said in, in the last little while where they've gone, I'm just going to try not having alcohol for a month and see how I feel. Yeah, I'm back for sure. Like, oh, my Lord. Seriously, I feel yeah. so much better off it. Damn it. Why did that have to be? Yeah, but I, damn it. You know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's true. Yeah. And if that gets you a good night's sleep, well, then sometimes it's easier to let it go. <laughs> it's true. The sleep is important. It's pretty precious at any age, but especially at this age, if we can find a way to sleep, it's yeah something to keep doing. Can can I ask because um, one of the one of the biggest things I see and hear around the traps is obviously that feeling so hot, like that heating up, not being able to get to sleep because you're feeling really hot and you're throwing off the covers in the bed, waking up with night sweats, etc. Can you just explain like the the reason for why? the change in hormone levels during perimenopause actually causes us to feel hot and sweaty? It's the, okay, in simplest terms, let's see if I can keep this simple. The brain is rewiring. So the brain, this is all about the brain, right? The brain is going through a pretty major recalibration process. I, I liken it to an, a software update on your computer. <laughs> you know, it's everything's just in kind of a holding pattern while it does this rewiring. Now, as part of that, there, there's a rewiring or the changes to the hypothalamus, which as you know, that part of the brain is the command center of a lot of things. It's also our thermostat. So the thermostat, shortens or, you know, shrinks. So like basically that what the body, the temperature that the body considers to be okay is a much narrower range. So it's easier to become, feel too hot or too cold. The solution. And so, and part of that is because of the dropping levels, not just not low estrogen per se, but like estrogen dropping from very high to very low. And this kind of relates back to the estrogen on a roller coaster, right? Going spiking up way too high and then careening, you know, falling off the other side. That can definitely destabilize the hypothalamus even more. The hypothalamus in a brain that's already, you know, re- going through changes. Losing progesterone doesn't help either because progesterone normally has quite a stabilizing effect on the hypothalamus. So it's those combination of factors. And 
fortunately, like I said, you know, the night sweats and hot flushes are usually some of the things that improve the fastest with some of the treatment. And another factor in all of that. So if, you know, if, if just the no alcohol, the magnesium, the natural progesterone doesn't stop all of that, if there's still hot, hot flushing and night sweats coming through, then it's time to think about, well, either taking estrogen, which is certainly possible. It, I mean, it definitely relieves hot flushes, but also addressing insulin resistance, which we've already just talked about. So to try to explain this, with the insulin resistance of menopause, that goes hand in hand with a drop in brain energy. So the brain is trying to do this recalibration process, but the brain actually, the brain cells actually have less energy than they need because they're not as able because of the shift to insulin resistance, they're not as able to turn glucose into energy. So that is part of the brain fog during the day, the memory loss, you know, forgetting words, forgetting where you parked your car. I give that example in the book. And then potentially the night, you know, the night sweats and the, the hot flushes. So I hope that starts to paint a picture. It's about the brain <laughs> and giving the brain what it needs, improving brain energy. And that will usually sort out that thermostat problem. Yeah, it makes so much sense. Mm. Oh goodness, it is. It's it's a real roller coaster, isn't it? <laughs> You're swinging from one end to the other in so many ways. It is, and and the severity of it will depend on genetics to some extent. So we have to acknowledge that. I mean, some people. That's why you need to want to ask your mother or your older sisters or your aunties how it was for them, because that can start to give you a picture. And the severity can also depend on things like if you went, I give the example in the book, if you went straight from the pill, straight into menopause, that could be kind of rough. That's sort of potentially going over what I call the estrogen cliff. No, um, I see people going straight from a marina into menopause as well. That's different, actually. But look, should we talk about the hormonal Yes. <laughs> let's talk about the hormonal IUD a little bit. Mm. So it's neither estrogen nor progesterone. It's a, it's a progestin drug called levonorgestrel that um, obviously works in the uterus, works locally in the uterus to thin the uterine lining and um, lighten flow by up to 90%. So there's a case to be made for the hormonal IUD for the flooding periods of perimenopause. Certainly it's better than the hysterectomy that used to be the standard routine treatment for that problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not, okay. So the thing about the hormonal IUD, it doesn't affect estrogen levels really. Like it doesn't, it doesn't really affect, it doesn't, well, it doesn't at all affect the the path to menopause, like you're, you're still, your ovaries are still cycling. They're still doing their thing. They're potentially still making lots of estrogen. They're um, potentially even making some progesterone because you can ovulate while you're on the hormonal IUD, which is very different from any other type of hormonal birth control, which suppresses ovulation. And the, the periods that you get on the hormonal IUD, if they're pure, if they're, if you get a bleed, those are typically real cycles, real periods, as opposed to fake periods or pill you know, drug-induced pill bleeds. I talk about this in both books. Mm. Um, And then, so the, so I guess short answer, the road to, through perimenopause and to menopause on the hormonal IUD shouldn't really be a problem. That's not, not the same as trying to come off the pill, a high estrogen pill. The only thing that can happen with the hormonal IUD, and it's more just a question of not quite knowing where you're at. Like if in some women they get no, if they manage 
if they get no bleeding at all on the hormonal IUD, they won't necessarily have that clue as to what's happening. Are they still having periods or have their periods stopped? They won't necessarily, well, they won't know from bleeding, but they will know probably from symptoms because they'll suddenly stop cycling, stop having the breast pain or, you know, the, the PMS or whatever they've been getting with their cycles and move potentially into hot flushes and, you know, vaginal dryness of that final phase four perimenopause when estrogen's low. I hope that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. So, and the thing about the hormonal ID is you can totally combine it with the other treatments. Like you can take the hormonal ID and progesterone. So there's no progesterone, just to say again, there's no progesterone in the hormonal IUD, but you can also use progesterone, say for migraine prevention or for hot flushes or something like that. Yeah, right. Okay. And then if someone's coming off the pill and again, like they, that, that would have been masking a lot of things and they don't really know what their cycle looks like. So what, what happened? Yeah. Well, that's, that's way more complicated. That's way more, that's much trickier because Okay, so unlike the hormonal IUD, which stops bleeding and maybe might mask the fact that you've stopped bleeding, um, the pills are the opposite in that it induces bleeding, but it forces a, a pill bleed. So what can happen is you could be having pill bleeds into your 50s or you know, maybe calling them periods, but they're not. Like, And then at some point be wondering, like at some point you would have gone through menopause anyway underneath that. And then it's essentially what you're on is a just a type of hormone replacement, quite a high dose one actually with the pill that is inducing a monthly bleed. But then as soon as you stop it, you're in full menopause. That's, that's, that can be a trickier situation. And I give a patient story in the book where she's, she does that. She's on the pill into her, I forget what age, you know, into her 50s. She stops it. She's clearly been in menopause for a while, probably. And we've no, we don't know how long, but she's in menopause and it commences hot flushes and then wants to go back on the pill. But I suggested to her at that point that probably it actually makes more sense to go on to menopausal hormone therapy, that, which is safer than the pill and lower dose and natural hormones, as opposed most modern menopausal hormone therapy is natural hormones as opposed to the pill, which is obviously not. Um, and the other thing to say about the pill is it cannot absolutely 100% cannot delay menopause, right? Like it doesn't work like that. Like the, the ovaries are programmed to stop. They shut up shop at a certain point. Like it's genetically programmed largely. Like the normal age for the ovaries going, yeah, we're done is between 45 to 55. And there's really not much you can do to change that. This is the other, one of my other messages is, if you're genetically programmed to have to stop menstruating on the earlier end of that bell curve, say at 47, 48, that's fine. Like it's not a reflection. It doesn't, you know, being super healthy or super fit or whatever, you know, isn't going to change the timing of that. Like I always give the example, I've got several very like healthy friends, you know, fit, very youthful in lots of ways, you know, exercise, eat well, and their periods stop at 47. And that's just how it was always going to be, right? Like that's just how this works. Well, it starts when it starts in puberty. Yeah. So if yeah. we're looking at this like it is puberty working itself backwards, then yeah. it's going to stop when it stops as well. Yeah, 
it stop when it stops. I mean, there are, to be fair, there are there's some research that certain things like smoking can bring it a little earlier, like a lifetime of smoking can bring it earlier, you know, illness, obviously there are things that can move it around a little bit, but it's having menopause on the earlier side of normal is not a sign of anything. It's not a sign of being health unhealthy. Yeah. It's not a fail. No, (laughs) no, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, okay. Let's talk about nutritional considerations at this time. So you mentioned iodine as being uh, one key factor. Um, Yeah. Well, I love it. It's one of my key nutrients for women's health. I just, I suspect, I think from a biological evolutionary perspective, we just have a much higher requirement for iodine than we're meeting with our modern diets. Um, It's a somewhat of a controversial nutrient and it's true. You do need to be careful because if you have pre-existing thyroid disease, particularly Hashimoto's disease or autoimmune thyroid disease, which is very common actually. Especially during perimenopause. Exactly. And you saw my book, I have a section about thyropods or, you know, that meeting, that confluence. I, I give a Venn diagram of perimenopause Hashimoto's and insulin resistance. When those three things happen together, then you're in. But I shouldn't laugh because it's it's not a fun place to be. It's, it's no, actually quite <laughs> no. It's a it's a hard. I mean, it's it's Shit. treatable. You it's treatable, and you can get out of it. But like, I'm just saying that's. I'm just acknowledging for anyone who's got that triple whammy, which is a lot of women listening today, that it's you can get out of that. You can you know reverse all of that. Or you can't necessarily reverse Hashimoto's, but you can improve it to the extent that it's not causing symptoms and you can reverse insulin resistance. Well, and you can't reverse perimenopause obviously, but you can, you know, treat it and get through to menopause and feel well. Mm-hmm. So back to iodine for a minute. Like if you, let's just talk for the moment. If you don't have thyroid disease, because that's the far simpler situation. Yeah. If, if you do not. Hashimoto's talk to a cracky. Yeah, exactly. If you've got. Before yeah. <laughs> Exactly. So if you, but if you don't have Hashimoto's or you don't have thyroid disease or, you know, put it this way, if you have, if you've been told you have hypothyroidism or um, underactive thyroid, chances are it is Hashimoto's, even if you weren't told it was Hashimoto's. So that also applies to any of you. I say that a lot in practice. I'm like, so it's Hashimoto's. They're like, I don't know. Yeah. But right now for the moment, we're talking about women who don't have that that and have things like breast pain or adenomyosis or endometriosis or bad premenstrual mood, a high-ish dose of iodine can be a game changer for that. And I I think I give at least two patient stories in the book about it. Like I was just a little bit over enthusiastic about how great it is. And I'll just talk about the dose. If you don't have thyroid disease, I'm in the book, I talk about between one to three milligrams, which is a thousand to 3000 micrograms. Just being, making sure I've got the units right here. <laughs> and it's um, obviously very different than what you might get in a standard over-the-counter iodine, which is a hundred micrograms. So yeah, I'm talking 100, potentially, 100 yeah. And I'm talking a yeah, thousand to three, I'm talking a thousand to 3000. That's a lot. It, it is. But I, so I guess I'm just saying, be careful, you know, speak to your clinician, but I just, I still feel given its benefits and what that can mean for women, I still want that to be information that's out there. There's a, there's a product, which I'm happy to name by product name. I don't get any money from them or anything, but I'm a, a big fan. They're called Violet, Violet Daily. Daily. They're out of the US. 
they're not easy to obtain in Australia, but the reason I mentioned them, the product is a, it's a 3000 microgram tablet with some selenium built into it is that actually their website's really great. And they've got a blog and they've got like information about iodine and breast health. And so I just think even until the day when we can access that in Australia, that's still good to, information to have. Do you test iodine levels first before going in with those sorts of doses? No, but I pretty much routinely test thyroid antibodies. That's the test for Hashimoto's. So even if the thyroid function is normal, I'll test as if I can't, well, usually I'd say almost always, unless I guess there's some, there might be a few exceptions, but almost always I would test thyroid antibodies as a baseline safety check. And you can like self-order that, or, you know, your naturopath can order that the, from memory, like in a, in Australia, that test is about $40. Like here in New Zealand, it's about $25 to test that. So it's, it's a small investment and it's definitely worth doing because if you do have thyroid antibodies or that autoimmune reaction against the thyroid, well then A, you need to not take 3000 micrograms of iodine and two, and B, you need to do something about that potentially, you know, help to lower that and that can make you feel better. Yeah, absolutely. Because antibodies that high are going to lead to a whole lot of inflammation and brain fog and, and symptoms of its own, like that anyone with antibodies that high is going to feel like they've got no energy and they're in pain and there's so much going on that mm-hmm. could be then making some of these perimenopausal symptoms feel a lot worse. For sure. Yeah. yeah. Oof, one yeah. three thousand. All right. Yeah. <laughs> well, and we've we've put lots of precaut we've put lots of precautions around it. So just everyone listening, just think carefully. And the re- actually the reason I say the doses also, Jules, is because as you probably as you may know, there are a number of pretty popular iodine products that you can buy online that are like thirty thousand micrograms. So you know, you can buy over the, well, in Australia, not over the counter in Australia, but like if you're buying from overseas online, you can get anywhere between like per dose, a hundred micrograms up to like 50,000 micrograms of iodine. So you really that need to that really scares me. read the label, right? This is something these high dose iodine supplements are, I think it's a bit better now, but they used to be just sitting there right there on the like iHerb website or whatever mm-hmm. these like right really next to the dim which we won't yeah. rant about today but oh yeah self-prescribing dim uh no <laughs> yeah <laughs> so crazy. i think we've i think we've covered that carefully and i think i'll just so. again refer people to the book and think about it and yeah yeah like it's, yeah. it's good to have an open mind and to see what what frontiers you know people what, what what trails people are blazing at the moment because sometimes mm-hmm. i think even as a practitioner in australia like I do often err on the side of being a bit more conservative with dosing and it's good to just, you know, have that shaken up a little bit sometimes and go, oh, actually, we, we can have another look at this as long as we make it safe. Yeah, well, for, just for in terms of breast pain, like the breast cysts and the breast oh, pain, like, yes. yeah, like honestly, I'll, I'll be honest, 100 micrograms of potassium iodide will do nothing mm. for that symptom. But like a properly dosed, I generally try to use something called molecular iodine in those higher dose ranges can eliminate the breast cysts, right? Like obviously, and we're talking about breast cysts, like obviously there's the whole caveat, see your doctor, make sure it's, you know, get a proper diagnosis. And, but if you've just been sent away from your doctor or she's saying it's just fibrocystic breast, it's nothing we can do. 
then that's where iodine could come in potentially. Yeah. And that cyclical breast pain as well. Yeah. Or boobs before the period thing that, yeah. again, can get worse around that time. Very much so, actually. Breast pain is one of the bigger symptoms of perimenopause. Yeah. 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 And ovulation symptoms as well. Oh, Lord. Yeah. 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 So fun being a woman. All right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you've spoken a little bit about HRT and, and the relevance of it and the relative safety of it compared to a couple of decades ago. Are there herbs and, and other natural things that you try first or when? how do you know when to say let's try some herbals and how do you know when to say let's get you to a good GP who can prescribe the right sort of hormone therapy for you? I guess it would depend on severity of symptoms to some extent. I mean, most of the patients I work with prefer to try the non-hormonal things first and I'm totally prepared to give them, you know, a few months of seeing what works. And like I said, a lot of the time that works, at least 50% of the time, actually magnesium, like a good magnesium powder plus no alcohol is really all they need. Other herbal medicines... I use a lot of the sleep formulas, like kind of Zizifus, that kind of category of sleep herbal mix, to which helps with night sweats and sleep. Um, I know some practitioners use Vitex quite a lot in perimenopause. I didn't include that in the book, which I'm kind of wishing maybe I had now, but that's Chase Tree is another option. Second edition, mate. Second edition. <laughs> yeah, maybe. And uh, I do talk about black cohosh in the book. I've never found it to be particularly helpful. Like I don't prescribe it. Not because I'm against it, but just I just feel, in my experience, there are other things that work better. But that's obviously, yeah. So I think it's most women are quite happy to try for a few months. And then if it's, if their life is impacted, especially by the sleep disturbance, then there can be a case for, well, I'll just summarize like uh, my position would be potentially try progesterone on its own before introducing estrogen. Um, cause it's safer. It's potentially, I would argue better in some ways, but there's also a number of my patients do also go to the estrogen patch route. Again, I would argue always in combination with progesterone, even if you don't have a uterus, cause progesterone is actually quite good for protecting the breasts from estrogen, not just the uterus. And I'm talking real progesterone here. So the modern the word is body identical now. The most, most not all, conventionally prescribed menopausal hormone therapy is body identical or bioidentical. What used to be called bioidentical, although typically the word bioidentical is not used because that was the word that was used through all the decades when we had to get that sort of thing by compounding, compounding pharmacist. Um, like the so, just quickly, just the brand names. Like so. Body identical progesterone in Australia is Prometrium. In the US, it's Prometrium. Canada, in the UK and New Zealand, it's Eutrogestin is the brand name. It's best to usually ask for it by brand name rather than say natural progesterone because it's just a more efficient way to communicate with the doctor by brand name. Yeah. And then the estrogen is the best one is um, a patch. Estrogen is way so progesterone can be taken as a pill. In fact, it works better that way. Progesterone way, way safer through the skin as a patch. Um, a low dose, potentially something called maybe Estradot would be one of the brand names. That's body identical estradiol, so natural estrogen. And 
in the book, I recommend as low a dose as possible, really like 25 micrograms is the lowest dose. It's usually a good, the best place to start rather than going too high. And the, the current recommendations or official recommendations are use it if your symptoms are severe enough to warrant that, which I mean, if it's affecting your life in a negative way, if it's safe to take, obviously, in terms of um, usually they won't give estrogen if there's a personal history of breast cancer, which makes sense. Um, the other reason official recommendation, you know, reason to potentially use hormone therapy is menopause before 45 or especially before 40 for the sake of bone health. And the other reason would be is if there's other risks, like if bone health is a risk, particularly in terms of like, if there's been a history of anorexia or smoking or, you know, corticosteroid use or or something that might affect bone density and um, bone risk. Yeah. When you talk about the high estrogen, low progesterone uh, element of that phase one of perimenopause. Uh, Would you at that time also give things that help to lower the estrogen and um, improve detoxification pathways? My favorite is uh, calcium deglucarate. So I give that quite a lot. Um, Have you talked about that before on the podcast? It's the Somewhere act, I'm yeah. sure we have, yeah. I think yeah. when I've spoken to Dr. Carrie Jones, we might have touched upon it as well. Yeah, I think she talks about. It. So it's the actual part is the glucurate, not the calcium. The calcium is just the like part of the salt, but like part of the the compound. But the, the glucurate is um, the main thing it does is downregulate a bacteria, a gut enzyme, a bacterial enzyme that deconjugates estrogen without getting too technical. It basically helps the calcium deglucurate, the supplement helps to promote healthy estrogen clearance through the bowel, through the gut. And my other, I guess, if you will, anti-estrogen treatments are iodine, which we spent, we just talked about. One of it, I should have probably mentioned back then that it's one of its main mechanisms is by downregulating the estrogen receptor. So it's, I'd say it's one of the strongest anti-estrogen things out there. The next thing I would, well, no, no alcohol, we talked about, <laughs> we've got a theme here going, because no, alcohol is estro- you know, estrogen promoting um, because of the way it impairs estrogen metabolism. And then finally, I would just put in there, um, no dairy. Uh, in terms of mechanisms, look, like I don't, I don't think it's fair to say that dairy is estrogenic per se, but it dairy can cow's dairy can definitely activate mast cells and histamine, which has a pro-estrogen effect in the body. Feeds into that kind of estrogen histamine feed forward vicious cycle. And for what it's for whatever combination of reasons, cow's dairy can make periods heavier, and removing it can make periods lighter. And Wow. That, That's a it's, big statement. <laughs> it's pretty consistent. It's not, it's not, it's not universal. It's going to be exceptions, of course, but it's definitely something to try. Yeah. That's it. That That's the thing. Something like avoiding dairy is quite a simple thing. I mean, it's a very big shift for some people and it's like, oh my God, what am I going to have in my coffee? Rah, rah, rah. But it's also free. Like you can just yeah. have dairy tomorrow and you don't have to, you know, buy a supplement or nope. pay for testing. Like you can just stop the dairy. Although I will say 
that it's going to mess with some people's heads because so many women are pre-programmed, especially around this age, to be thinking of bone density. And then when you think of bone density, you are pre-programmed to think about upping your dairy because that's what we always got told now you know I, I think you and I are on the same page yeah about how we feel about that yeah I'm just saying what's probably sitting in most people's subconscious yeah. is oh my lord no I need healthy bones okay and as you said I suspect we're on the same page like I'll just oh, say for are. what it's oh, for are. what it's <laughs> for what it's worth like I do provide a referenced statement in the book that a high dairy diet is not correlated with better bone health like the science is just not there like i know we've had this we've had this intuitive thing it's like oh well wait oh there's calcium in dairy therefore ergo we think that must all add up but it doesn't and there's different reasons for why that doesn't work out but i think one of the main reasons is that honestly dairy is so inflammatory and so problematic for the gut and just 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 on the very simplest terms like if especially if dairy is affecting your gut that's impairing nutrient absorption. So right there, you're just because there's calcium in the dairy doesn't mean you're absorbing it all. And there's just, yeah, so many aspects to that. But there's, there's ways to, calcium is important in the diet. Like I don't want to say we don't need it, but like you can get it from green veggies and nuts and seeds and bones and salmon and even a little bit of supplementation if you want. Tons of people in the world traditionally never ate dairy and their bones were okay, right? So um yeah. So actually one of the statements, I think one of the scientists I quote, he says something like humans, how did he phrase it? There's no nutritional requirement for animal milk, right? Like obviously baby humans need human milk. I mean, obviously well, that's, that's goes without saying, but like adult humans don't require, have a nutritional requirement for animal milk. There's, we have a nutritional requirement for calcium and for protein, of course, but we can get those in other ways. Yeah. 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 All right. Big question. You ready? Yeah. yeah. While we're on this topic, soy. Yeah, I'm a soy agnostic. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm so like, curious. <laughs> yeah, I'm soy, I'm soy neutral. Like, honestly, okay, like, I, I don't eat a lot of soy myself. I just because I don't, I, well, I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's, it's not the most nutrient dense food out there. Like it's certainly not necessarily something we need to load up on. And some people are sensitive to soy, like it's common, somewhat reasonably common allergy, Um, certainly heavily processed soy, like soybean oil and processed soy protein powder. I think most people can agree that's processed food. Like that's not healthy, like just normal soy, like edamame beans and tofu and soy sauce, like, they're fine. As far as I'm concerned, that's fine. They're fine. I mean, one of the things in my book and actually my blog, I have a blog post about how this is important. Phytoestrogens, such as you'd get in soy and other plant foods, lentils and nuts and seeds and f- plant estrogens have an anti-estrogen effect in women of reproductive age. So what I mean is like when we're cycling, when we're like in our you know, 15 years old to 55 years old, kind of in that range, we tend to be quite high estrogen. So, you know, that we like our own estrogen. So that what happens is the plant estrogens are so mild, so weak, they end up kind of buffering that blocking estrogen and promoting its healthy metabolism. So they have an estrogen lowering, I guess I'd add phytoestrogens to the list of something that can lower estrogen in a good way, right? Like, it's a little bit different for children and 
men and menopausal women, but even then, like a moderate amount of phytoestrogen is not a problem. You, you wouldn't, I don't like the idea. I don't love the idea of giving babies soy formula. If you know, like, if you know what I mean, like that to me, that feels like that's a big dose of a phytoestrogen for an infant like that's, but like that kind of thing, that's totally different than having tofu a few times a week as a adult woman. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you, you've really hit the nail on the head for me when it's, it's not just about the food, it's about how the food is processed. Like we demonize soy so much, but we're not looking at what, which soy and how it was treated and how it was processed and whether it was fermented traditionally. Uh, so there's so many, there's so many ways we can pull this apart and look at it. And I think uh, a lot of the fear around soy comes from a time when we were over processing it into like these really, you know, the, the well, I never foods that aren't natural. Yeah, I never engaged in the fear around soy. I feel like that was always, I'm not sure where that was coming from. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, but actually just to put it in perspective, like when I was started practicing in the mid 90s, people were having um, soy, like soy protein powder as a medicine, like loading up on soy. And of course, we sort of moved beyond that. That's not something we're doing anymore, but people were taking soy supplements. And so in the night, it went from that in the 90s to, I guess, through sort of a fearful phase, but soy, food soy is fine. Yeah. Um, my final question, because I know I'm going to get asked this a lot. And yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll be like, why didn't you ask it? Unless I. Yeah. I, okay. I to cover this, if someone's on HRT and they're keen to get off it, uh, do you have any advice there? Yeah. So the main thing. Okay. <laughs> I have a section in the book, which I mean, I know I, know I keep saying read the book, but I really do mean it. Yeah. Like trouble, troubleshooting hormone therapy. So, okay, step one is to make sure if you're taking it at all that it's body identical. It's that estrogen patch plus the prometrium that I talked about earlier. If not, then I would switch to that. Step one. Um, step two, if you want to try to come off it, the thing to understand is that estrogen is addictive. And um, progesterone is not, which is good. So, but with, with, because estrogen is addictive, it has to be weaned, tapered down. You can't just stop. You can really, I don't No one can really just stop estrogen, estrogen and feel okay. Like you typically stopping it suddenly would lead to hot flushes and night sweats. So you just have to slowly taper it down. If you're using the patch that may, maybe mean putting it on, Rather than twice a week, you stretch it out a little bit longer or something like that, or, or cut it in half or drop down to a lower dose one over some months. And that can, and, and I, in the book, I talk about staying on progesterone, particularly like specifically natural progesterone, prometrium, while you do that, because progesterone itself helps symptoms. So that can kind of buffer you from any of the withdrawal symptoms and then because you can stop the progesterone anytime actually, because it's not addictive. So that's, if you want to, it depends why you're trying to come off it, right? Like, and in terms of, even if you do want to come off it for what it's worth, the research around bone health, like if the reason someone is taking estrogen therapy, menopausal hormone therapy is to, because they're deemed to be at risk of osteoporosis, more at risk than an average woman, then the truth is you probably don't come off it, which I know sort of 
like it depends. It depends on the situation, right? Like we're, and it's all, all the, a lot of it is watch this space to see what the research shows, but um, we're all kind of waiting to see, like, if you do take estrogen therapy, how long you're supposed to take it for. So that's sort of the science is still out on that. Watch this space. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, all right. Look, we've covered so much terrain today and I really feel like we've busted through a lot of myths and also yeah. taken a lot of the fear out of some of, uh, some of these things during perimenopause as well. So Thank you so much yeah. for that because you, you've you got this knack and, and you've done it before with your first book, Period Repair Manual, and, and you've, you're doing it again now with Hormone Repair Manual. You've, you, you really have a slightly different way of looking at the world and you've got that curious brain and uh, you're on, it's like you've uncovered just different ways for us to actually address these problems. Uh, so thank you so much for all the research that you do the collaborations that you seek out and, and the way that you present this to the reader, both mm. lay people and practitioners alike, I know follow your work very closely. So thank mm. you for everything you do. Oh, thank you. That's really sweet. Thanks. Yep. And, um, do you want to let people know where they can purchase your book and how they can connect with you further? Yeah, I'm easy to find. So my book, well, the book we're talking about today is called Hormone Repair Manual. My first, so it's for any women, woman over 35, I would say. Everyone listening Pe- to this pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> the period of Prayer Manual is my first book. It's for any age, but I guess now it would be for the more younger age group. And then my blog is larabrydon.com, where you can also join my newsletter. I've started remembering to point that out because I, I send out about once a week, I try to send out a little selection of health news. And I've had some good feedback about that recently. And then all my social media is at Lara Bryden. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, I love, I really love the way that you have that fusion of traditional naturopathy and modern science. And um, yeah, it's definitely, uh, dear listener, if you're, if you're listening to this and and you're thinking of joining the mailing list and following Lara's work, please do, because uh, like I said, you, you make it accessible to everyone, no matter what your skill level. So that's awesome. And quite unusual. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Yeah. Oh, it was a great conversation. Thanks again for having me, inviting me back. Thank you so much and and good luck with the sales of the book. I hope it reaches lots and lots of people. Thanks. All right. Take care. I hope you enjoyed listening to Straight Talking Natural Health. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Also, head over to my website at julesgalloway.com. There's a free quiz on there to see if you're at risk of burnout. I also have an amazing ebook called Heal Your Adrenals, which is a must for any woman with adrenal dysfunction, aka adrenal fatigue. When I'm not podcasting, I'm seeing clients all over the world via Zoom. I love working with fatigue, thyroid issues, autoimmunity, pyrrole disorder, mold illness, and complex cases, to name just a few. So why not book in and let's work together? All of this and more is available right now over at julesgalloway.com. That's all from me for the time being. I look forward to diving in with you again in the next episode. Bye for now. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives.
Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.